Great. Um, so we're going to keep this one fairly short and sweet. I just mainly want to update you guys on the you know what we have been focusing on over the past week since we paused the V1 uh, USDC vault and have pivoted to our V2 vault strategy. So as you guys know, I don't think I need to spend too much time recapping uh, the events of last week. We made a decision on Friday to pause further deposits into the USDC vault, um, primarily because, you know, although we actually are, are confident that the vault would have, you know, had, had positive net returns for holders over time, that overall the risk reward profile of that strategy was not um, up, to, up to our standards. It was not you know, guaranteed to be, um, you know, near Delta neutral in all market conditions and the APR, um, you know, was being eroded a little bit by um, some issues associated with the cost of hedging. And as you guys know, we're very, very committed to transparency. And, you know, if we feel that, you know, the vault's performance is not in keeping with what was outlined in our docs and the detailed docs for that vault are still up um, on, on our main docs page. Um, then, you know, of course, we, we pause it and we made everyone whole. As you guys know, we reimbursed people um, for the, you know, modest approximately 1% net losses um, since the vault opened three weeks previously and also for the deposit fees. So everyone, you know, who has deposited seems, you know, fairly pleased with that outcome. Um, no, no losses. It looks like, you know, just about everyone has now completed a withdrawal from the vault. Um, there's small you know, less than 10% of the deposited assets remaining. So we're feeling good about that. It went, you know, as smoothly as it possibly could. Um, and now, you know, of course, what we're very happy about as, as a team is that, you know, the fact that we, you know, paused this fault, which was, you know, as you might imagine, taking up a lot of our bandwidth. We were very focused on, you know, upgrades, improvements, monitoring it day to day, uh, making sure, you know, that it, it was performing as well as it could. Um, you know, we, now that we're not doing that anymore, um, day to day, we have, you know, our, our plate is cleared and that allows us to go all in on focusing on the V2 vaults. So, you know, I think the most relevant thing to just impart onto you guys during this conversation is that, you know, this. V2 Vault is not just some sort of general thing that we threw out to make the fact that we were pausing the USDC Vault sound better. Um, we actually had, you know, by the time by the time we had gone through the full product development process for the V1 Vault, we had made a lot of observations about, you know, alternative approaches to the strategy that we realized, you know, could in the future eliminate certain risk factors, you know, certain, you know, layers of complexity, um, you know, make create a more resilient strategy and also a more capital efficient strategy. And of course, you know, as you might imagine, if you're trying to create blue chip DeFi products, you know, if you make certain observations one month prior to launch date for the V1 vault, it's not necessarily the case that you can just bake those in, right? Um, for example, many of these ideas we developed, you know, during the live testing period subsequent to our audit, right? And we're only going to ship audited code. So point being, we actually have had specifications in mind for a V2 suite of GLP-based products. 
um, you know, even prior to our decision to close down the USDC vault, you know, our that was already next on our list of things to start working on um, on our product roadmap. And, you know, we were we were very excited about it. Um, and, you know, now we had hoped, of course, that the V1 would, you know, perform as we expected it to. Um, and, you know, we were willing to, you know, stick that out. And we were very bullish on it right up until, you know, some, some last minute issues with the performance really drove our decision to close it down. But we knew that V2 was going to be better. And it's, it's really in that spirit that I'm sort of excited to share with you guys where things stand with our V2 product development process. And so I'm just going to zoom out a little bit. Hopefully what I've just shared is useful context on, you know, just the recent events around V1 um, and our decision to pause it. I'm going to just zoom out um, and give you guys just a little bit more macro context because I think it's relevant um, before I delve into the details on V2. So you know, when, when I took over as project lead of Umami back in, uh, in February, um, late February, early March, you know, there was, we were going through a period of, you know, major turnover on the team. Um, we were still, you know, in a non-led project. I hadn't doxxed. No one else on the team had doxxed to me. Um, you know, the mixture of sort of recent attrition on the team, as well as, you know, the fact that we simply were, you know, just a very small VGen Arbitrum project meant that we didn't necessarily have, you know, a deep bench of, you know, financial analysts with, you know, senior level experience on Wall Street and, you know, um, you know, tech, you know, software engineering managers and, and developers with, you know, 10 years of experience as, you know, technical leads. We didn't have that kind of, you know, capability when I joined. And so the V1 vault, you know, you guys remember it, it took, I would say about four to five months that process, that product development process. And then of course, you know, there was still, um, we had done back testing, but you know, it, we hadn't covered every conceivable market scenario. Um, we had a detailed, you know, assessment of risks, but there turned out to be some, you know, a lot of those downside risks played out faster than expected. And I just think it's important context to sort of, you know, share with you guys, as I think, you know, if you've been with us for a long time that, you know, we were in the process of building an organization that, you know, could live up to Umami's vision, building a, you know, very well organized, very streamlined, skilled, focused, um, you know, essentially Web3 startup organization vis-a-vis -vis Umami Labs, um, doing that, you know, alongside product development. And, you know, we brought some really critical, really um, impressive talent onto the team. You know, Prepop is our chief technology officer, Wen Moon, as our treasury manager, um, you know, and, and, and other really talented individuals. Um, but a lot of those folks came on, you know, later, later on in the, in the process. Right. So my point in sharing all this is that we're coming into the development of V2, the V2 vaults as a fundamentally like radically, radically different organization than we were when we launched V1. We have, you know, a full organizational structure. We have multiple legal entities, uh, a, um, services contract between Umami Labs and Umami Dow, an extremely experienced chief technology officer, um, an extremely talented and experienced uh, treasury manager and lead product developer, um, two very senior level, very talented back end devs, and you know a technical lead slash 
uh, front-end dev who also has, you know, over a decade of experience. I mean, this is a really deep bench. I haven't, you know, even covered all the great people that we have working with us. We also now have relationships with, you know, really senior level Wall Street traders from, you know, blue chip organizations that you know, who are helping us, who are really interested in what we're building and helping us with, um, you know, building in-house modeling and backtesting, but up to the standards that they would be using on their own trading desks, right? To really, um, really deeply vet these strategies with much more backtesting data and just much more sophisticated modeling and financial analysis before we even start building that code. Now, that doesn't mean that our engineers are going to be idle while we're doing the backtesting. There's a lot of smart contract code that um, we can you know, forge ahead on even as we do that backtesting. But point is, is that the, the depth and, and the you know, s- amount of senior level experience in you know, really, really relevant areas to what we're doing that we now have and the quality of the organization that we've built is even for me, having been here, it's just amazing that we've gotten here in five months. So therefore, I have really, I'm highly optimistic about what this next product development cycle is going to look like. I'm really, really optimistic about it. And I'm, I'm really excited because we finally get to see, you know, our full capabilities, you know, un, no distractions from, you know, the, the V1 vault and just, you know, daily discussions around that, just all in on V2. And so just for some context about V2, and obviously we don't want to give away too much alpha, this is a competitive environment. Um, V2 is freaking awesome. I mean, this is, this is the vault. It's so much more elegant than, um, you know, what we, our vision was for V1. Again, it's one of those things where, you know, after really delving into V1 there, you just become familiar with sort of fundamental features of the kind of product that we're building, you know, and you have all these really great brains kind of thinking about it that, you know, we have, we, we came up with some pretty profound insights into how we can improve, you know, take what we're doing and make it vastly better and also simpler, which is the best. Um, We want to build trustless, permissionless vaults with as few centralized fail points as possible. We don't want to layer on needless complexity. So, you know, simplicity and improved performance, you know, greater resilience. That's what we want, especially because we want to be onboarding, you know, hundreds of millions plus of, you know, capital from institutions into these products. Um, So, you know, the basic vision without giving away too much alpha is that we are going to um, we're going to launch simultaneously vaults for all the relevant GLP assets. Um, And under the hood, they really will not be fully independent products. They will be interdependent under the hood at the smart contract level. And I, I don't want to give away too much more than that, but they will you know, be able to be counterparties to each other in a way that does not require an external hedge in every case, right? So in other words, you have you know, a USDC vault, you don't need to offset all of the market delta of you know, GLP with external hedges because you will have an Ethan BTC vault that can perform the role of counterparty to that. And there will still be some use of external hedges, 
Um, but, you know, we're very confident that um, the simple, linear hedging approach offered by leverage perpetuals is, is superior for this kind of strategy. We had, I think, very good reason to be wary of that at the time we built V1, which is that, um, you know, there are RPC latency issues with execution on trades on platforms such as GMX, you know, there historically have been. And if you have, you know, a collateralized leveraged perpetual um, as your hedge, and then you can't execute on adding collateral or, you know, adjusting that position in any way, and you get liquidated, then your delta neutrality suddenly blows up. So that was a huge concern. We didn't, you know, that's why we chose not to use them at first. But with Nitro launching, with some really fruitful conversations with various partners, um, you know, about ways that we can, um, you know, possibly just be whitelisted for certain functions that, you know, aren't available to, you know, everyone who's using those platforms, we're really becoming very confident that we can use these hedges without a hitch. You know, we're greatly reducing our reliance on them anyways through this counterparty approach. Um, and as a result, you know, we have this, you know, very capital efficient strategy, practically no reliance, you know, minimal reliance on external hedges, the external hedges we're using are very simple, linear hedges. So we're not going to have skew, we're not going to have convexity, all these kind of vexing challenges that, you know, complicated um, the V1 vault strategy. And we couldn't be more bullish, right? I mean, that we're really excited. And we're in, we are now working with some of those partners, you know, that I mentioned, senior level traders to build out our internal models and back tests and we're moving full steam ahead on the dev side with those products so you know the timeline that we shared from the start q4 still stands that's not going to change um but you know that's that's where our focus is and with that you know we have the we have prepop which is very very cool so let's uh let's have prepop do you want to share any of your thoughts you know on anything i covered either you know sort of just more background on v1 and then also any color on v2 Sure. Yeah, I'd like to um, first thank you for the intro, and um, that was a pretty good summary of where we're at. You know, from the from the macro environment, I think it is a uh, very exciting time that um, it will be the first you know full product development cycle we're running with this team, and um, we're really really happy about uh, you know the current dev team and strategy team leadership and um you know i couldn't say enough good things about um the in internal workings of the you know of the company day-to-day -day. communication levels is you know so high and we've got you know some of the most fantastic uh hard-working co-workers that i've had the pleasure of managing so um you know very excited to um you know be in this process and uh, i think a big point of it is the shift of in-house modeling, analytics, and back testing, right? Um, and with with the V1, um, you know, kind of post-mortem that we're drafting up, it's clear um, one of the areas we want to improve the most is definitely having um, our devs with the tools and capabilities to be able to assist with the strategists on achieving the technical level of analysis that, that we're going to need for these complex products. 
And as a result, we'll be able, on our journey to the V2 launch, be able to share a lot more detailed specifics um, on the strategy um, and its performance, its risk factors, um, and not just, you know, on the uh, technical side, right? We'll be able to help on, on both sides. So I think that's that's going to be just a fantastic addition for our organization that will help us for V2 and also all the other future products uh, that we've got ideas for and and uh, moving forward in the future. So, so yeah, that's uh, very excited on that. And then again, yeah, you know, development, like, like uh, D5 mentioned, we've already... We've already had identified the V2 um, improvements, right, I, along the way, along the process of V1. Um, and, of course, we can say, you know, with full confidence, when we released V1, we thought, you know, for sure um, it, was, it was going to perform to expectations, although we had outlined the risks. And as we can see now, too, um, we, you know, those risks did all prove true, kind of hit, hit together. Um, and so these improvements had already been targeted. So this is not a, a very quick turnaround. This is already something we had put a lot of thought into, into planning. And also, it was always our strategy for uh, moving cross-chain uh, to support the AVAX GMX operation uh, uh, and the GLP over there, which, of course, did not have a comparable hedging product for V1. So, um, you know, a lot of these design concepts were already thought through uh, because of that and um, just happened to be a much more efficient and much more um, internal system that, you know, that, that reduced reliance on, on external hedges as, as much as possible. And, you know, when we, when we think about now, when we think about the different components um, to any strategy on, you know, a technical side and a strategy side, uh, we can think of it in four, you know, four different areas. Basically, the cost, cost of hedging, the cost of generating yield, the risk involved, whether it's technical risk, smart contract risk, um, risk factors that could, um, you know, change outcomes, whether sharp movements in in the market um, or, um, you know, other other areas of of uh, of change, right? Like a, a change in operation of a, of a protocol. So cost, risk, then there's scalability, how well both sides can scale, both on yield, hedging, um, that sort of thing, you know, can both be aligned with a strategy to reach our target uh, TVL for the product and technical debt, which is um, how, how many technical constraints using a different product um, whether it's smart contract interactions or uh, the need for any off-chain components versus all on-chain components, so those are are really the emphasis on on you know our decision making of what goes into the strategy for these vaults and and has been fully applied for this these V2 vaults. So um, yeah, we, like like Diva said, we're really excited to see the full first cycle of of the current dev team. And everybody's, you know, highly motivated with, with the setback of, uh, of the V1, you know, um, winding down. And I think that was a great decision. And, and I applaud everybody on the team for making sure all holders are, are you know, fully, fully paid back uh, what they deposited plus fees for that. And uh, really looking forward to uh, sharing more updates on the V2 uh, 
both on the strategy side and the technical side as we as we make progress. Thank you, Prebub. That was a really great update. And yeah, I'm glad I, I was remiss for not mentioning um, Avalanche. Um, this was the strategy we're using was a strategy we were planning to deploy um, more or less um, even before the V1 um, pause on a Avalanche. And, you know, again, the beauty of how we're structuring it is, you know, by reducing external hedging de dependency, it, it does greatly increase um, our ability to move cross chain because, you know, most of the functions of the vault are internalized. Um, you know, leverage perps are relatively easier to come by on different chains uh, than, you know, some of the more, you know, exotic and, and specialized instruments we were using in the, in the previous vault. So the ability to basically fork our own strategy and, you know, go cross chain um, more or less, you know, unconstrained, um, is pretty, pretty exciting too. Um, and with that, we, we want to keep these down, you know, these community calls down to about 30 minutes. So we're going to open things up to questions now and, you know, take any, any questions for the next few minutes before, um, 5.30 EST. One quick plug before that is that we have a YouTube channel, um, for those of you who are, have access to our discord, go to the AMA questions and chat channel. Um, and you can see I just now dropped in a link to Umami's YouTube. We have this nice truncated version of a panel that, um, that I was at with DeFiCon um, a couple weeks ago. Um, we just, it's just the Umami-related segments. Um, so that's you know, a nice overview of a lot of our key ideas and values. And we're also going to be posting our AMAs here as well. So I encourage that. And with that, um, questions, you know, remember that if you have access to our Discord, you can go to AMA questions, um, which is right below our general chat, and type any questions you have. If you haven't gone to our Discord before, there's a link to it just right here on our Twitter. Just go up to the bio section, and you'll see that link. Um, and of course, you're also welcome to ask questions right here in the, in the Twitter spaces. So fire away. Well, the first question was, what did you learn from the V1 vault performance? I think we've addressed that um, in quite a bit of detail. But again, um, in September, we will have our um, full analysis uh, post. Sure, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the objectives we wanted with that, too, is also talk about the improvement strategies along with that. So there's a little bit more context of what went wrong, what we learned, and then how we're moving forward with that kind of um, in the same, in the exactly. same article. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we've decided that we're basically going to merge that postmortem into a uh, broader white paper that will also cover the mechanics of the V2 strategy as well. So that's that's our vision. Let's get clones Cody up here. Hey guys, um, I, I had a question more related to the institutional partners side. So maybe you can like say everything and stuff so it's fine but um as like the the stop of the v1 changed anything on that side uh like with your partners since they were like school farming and everything um That's a great question and how are they gonna approach the v2 with like the three volts combination thank you yeah i'm glad you asked that um let me share some updates on that so you know, we made sure that before we shut down the V1 strategy that we did notify our skew farming partners that they were going to be that we were going to be doing that so that they weren't taken by surprise. 
Um, we've been in close contact with all of our partners, um, you know, that from you know, before that day, you know, during the day that it was paused and subsequently. And you know, as far as we're aware, no one, um, no one was burned. People did, you know, get a heads up from us and have a chance to withdraw. So that was very important. It was just, uh, you know, a very sensitive exit. And, you know, of course, the fact that we reimbursed at everyone for those modest losses helped enormously um, as well. The overall feedback, um, to be honest with you guys, is that, you know, our decision to do that was actually something that helped further build trust with our partners. I think any, any investor, retail or institutional, right, that chooses to deposit with the DeFi protocol is, you know, ex- taking on a fair amount of risk, right? Because even if it's audited and, you know, even if there's some level of team docs, I mean, this has been a really... There's been a lot of, you know, sketchiness that's gone on in the DeFi space, as we all know. And, and there's also just been a lot of, um, of poor performance, right? I mean, most of us have gotten wrecked to one degree or another, um, you know, from DeFi investments, you know, if, if we've been in the space for any length of time at all. And, you know, of course, institutional capital um, by nature is, you know, even more conservative. So, you know, I, I, the feedback that we've heard and also what I would kind of like to believe is, you know, Frankly, the decision to shut down a product, not even because, you know, it was it was on fire and the house was about to burn down, but rather because it just was not living up to the performance expectations that we targeted and had shared. Right. And, you know, even if it did have positive APR, we would not have internally been comfortable with the risk reward tradeoffs being made by the strategy. Um, you know, that's from what we're hearing, you know, people recognize that that's very rare. That kind of mentality is very rare, let alone reimbursing people for the difference in a, you know, space where people get, you know, lose 90%, right? And, you know, a lot of projects will just shrug. Um, You know, we want to differentiate ourselves. And if I, you know, frankly, as much as this was a setback, we did recognize on Friday when we made this decision that this was also an opportunity to prove to people how serious we are about sustainable risk hedged um, yield, right? That, you know, that is the foundation of our strategy. And, you know, by being very transparent, reimbursing everyone, handling the wind down process as smoothly as possible and providing, you know, this post-mortem analysis, we just hope that, you know, this helps us continue to deepen um, trust with, with our users. So that's, and that, that has been what the general feedback has been. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, any other questions from listeners here on Twitter spaces? I see one question in our AMA questions in chat thoughts on utilizing MUX. Um, although I'm bullish on GMX, it seems to be a strong competitor to it is this person's comment. And that's really valid. So actually I'm just going to use that as a quick plug, um, to underscore something. Um, Because we actually got a lot of inbounds about, oh, why aren't you partner with them? Why aren't you partner with this project? Um, Our strategies, because our focus is on onboarding institutional capital at scale into these sort of core, um, you know, BTC, ETH, and USDC, you know, uh, sustainable yield generating strategies, we really can't, we're we're focusing on, you know, we're only going to build on products that can absorb you know, 100 million, 150 million plus TVL at a minimum. So I think there's a ton of awesome projects doing really cool things on Arbitrum and elsewhere that 
are creating products that at some point could be a wonderful complement to our strategies. And we just need to watch them scale. It just, we can't, you know, we see that one product launch cycle is, you know, three months of, you know, rigorous analysis from all these, you know, different people with different, uh, different, you know, really deep skill sets. We, we can't do that for something unless, you know, there's a really high payoff in the form of scalability downstream of, of launching it. So that's, that's how we think about those things. Nothing, nothing against MUX or anyone else. Um, any, any other questions um, from the community? And likewise, Prepop, any final thoughts or comments on your part? I think, uh, I think that was a pretty good summary. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we'd like to wait a few more minutes, but yeah, if there's no more questions, uh, we're all very excited. And, and yeah, we will be updating... Uh, you know, via blog posts and, and uh, on the Discord. So follow along for, for the updates. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, uh, let's hang out for a couple more minutes if anyone wants to ask further questions, and then we'll call it a, call it a week. Last call. Questions from the community? Questions in AMA questions in chat? But yeah, I want to I want to thank everybody that's here, that's uh, tuning in and listening. Thank you guys for the support through through everything. And you know, it was a tough week, but I, I I'm very proud to be a part of this community. And um, you know, I can tell each and every one of you the comments and messages that uh, everybody has sent really really did help uh, support everybody on the team um, and and you know motivate us to work uh you know so hard for these for these next few pro uh, you know this next product release so thanks thanks to everybody in the community yeah i'm glad you said that people have been really supportive and it's you know, more than i think one would expect in a setting like this just you know a lot of sure. people were met face to face just reaching out with some really yeah. it means a lot <laughs> otherwise you know it's just uh us kind <laughs> of you know, doing our own post-mortem about you know what 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 didn't go the way we wanted to. So it's the, the encouragement means a great deal. Um, we have a fellow here, yeah. blockchain watcher. Do you uh, want to share a question? Yeah. Uh, thanks Lex. Um, thanks OX prop for uh, bringing me up to stage. Um, yeah. As many have, uh, I'm sure voiced um, in various capacities, as you just mentioned, uh, I think that the reason that the community um, was so uh well receiving of the of the news was because uh, the umami team was very transparent and very well in communicating um, the you know what was what was going to happen. Not only that, but um, Lex, as you had mentioned, the uh, obviously the reimbursement had a big factor in you know in the well receiving of the news as well. So in any case, um, the you know the <clears throat> the response from the community is altogether um, well deserved. Um, it's it, so um, with that, I did have a question uh, concerning um, the umami uh, marinating. So uh, it was mentioned in the latest blog post that most of the uh, umami uh, native yield is generated through, of course, the underlying uh, GLP and GMX staking. So I think the current marinating rate is around like seven or eight percent APR. Um, uh, do we, when, when the new vaults go live, um, how, maybe it's not, it hasn't been decided yet, but how will the uh, fee structure and revenue share 
um, be be taken into account for for the umami token? Great question. Um, yeah, and no, I, I appreciate you asking that. So basically, nothing nothing about the overall framework that we've shared in the past has has changed um, since the pause v one. That being said, I think we could probably you know we could and should do more to clarify kind of the details of these mechanics. In fact, um, I think I should I should update our docs with what I'm about to say because um, it's it's an important message, and you know I, I don't think we've been as clear on it as as we should be. Um, so here's here's the basic breakdown right now, and you know for ever since we established the Marinate V2 product. We have been, you know, establishing a track record of revenue sharing by passing on 50% of the treasury assets, liquid yield revenue, to stakers, um, to marinators. So, you know, that's what we're still doing now. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, we've, we've been very uh, diligent in sort of cleaning up and consolidating our treasury lately. Um, we want, you know, the most capital efficiency possible and, you know, just the, the most robust runway for our team that we possibly can. So just as you said, just about everything is in GLP at this point, um, the majority of our assets. Of course, we also have our LP, Umami ETH and Umami USDC as well, um, and some other holdings, but it's mostly GLP. And so we're passing on, you know, really in practice, the majority of the ETH yield from GLP um, to marinators. And you know, then, of course, internally, we're bringing in fees from our own Umami ETH, Umami USDC LP. We're accumulating and stacking ESGMX, which also generates ETH. We're you know, keeping a portion of the GLP ETH yield. And we have some other you know, holdings that we continue to, to operate and generate fees from as well. But as you said, right now, mostly GLP ETH being pushed to marinators. We are targeting month, you know, each month about 50% of treasury yield revenue to marinators. Now, obviously, we don't, I, I want to, I'm just going to sort of editorialize here for a second because I think it's relevant. We don't believe that that counts as quote unquote real yield in the purest sense or in the sense that we're targeting um, because it's not external protocol revenue from products, right? We are doing the current, you know, pushes of ETH to marinators, not because we see the Umami token as like some kind of play on GLP, you know, or yield asset uh, in the way that our vaults are supposed to be yield assets. Um, we really see, to be clear, the Umami token's value is a function of protocol revenue from our vault strategies, which will grow as the vaults scale their TVL. And that is the true source of intrinsic value to the Umami token. The reason that we have been pushing ETH from the treasury, specifically from GLP, has much more to do with market signaling than really anything else, right? In essence, like we want to make clear that this is not a pie in the sky promise. We want to make clear that, you know, we are going to stick with a 50-50 revenue share model and that we're doing it now, um, even when our revenue is just a function of um, treasury asset yield, right? But longer term, we don't find, you know, 50% of yield from the treasury's assets to be a particularly exciting value proposition for marinators. 
Um, I mean, it's compelling enough now because it's 8% APR, but long-term, you know, what makes Umami an exciting play is what you referenced, you know, we've talked about, which is Marinators getting a claim on revenue from the fees charged by our vaults. And those are hugely scalable revenue streams. It's, It's quite beautiful if you model it out because once those smart contracts are built, it's not, it's not like we have to, you know, sell to people, right? We don't have to have a sales team here sort of pushing, you know, for each bit of revenue, you get the deposits into the vault and now you have a revenue stream and those vaults are scalable. And so then as more people deposit, you get more revenue and it just keeps ramping. So to be clear, you know, I think that basic fee structure we shared for V1, you know, we're planning on having something quite similar for, v2 i mean there might be certain variations um because of course it's still a work in progress and we will share all the details with you guys as soon as we have that v2 white paper written but you know this basic concept of you know 0.5 percent deposit fee 1.5 percent management fee and then a 15 percent performance fee is is a reasonable approximation of what we're going to use for all of our products um and you know, what that means to be clear is, you know, the deposit fee would be upfront. So 0.5% deposited assets taken up from, it's almost like a capital raise for the Imami treasury. Then, you know, 1.5% management fee. So that's a percent of TVL taken over the course of a year. Um, so, you know, just over a 10th of a percent per month. Um, and 15% performance fee, people have been really confused by that. This is not 15% of TVL. This is 15% of the value generated by the strategy of the yield. So, um, think about it as something like 15% of 15%. Um, and again, that would be taken over a year. So, you know, 1% of a little over 1% of the yield, for example, each month. Um, so you know, that's, that's our fee framework. And again, as TVL increases in the vaults, all those numbers just mechanically increase. Our goal is to really, there's going to be a point very, very soon after the successful launch of our V2 products, where this ETH revenue from our treasury holdings is so eclipsed by the revenue from the vaults, that it's irrelevant to marinators, right? And, you know, from a treasury management perspective, and, you know, if you're sort of familiar at all with kind of general frameworks for how startups should be allocating capital, it doesn't really make sense for us to be kicking our own, you know, yield out the door to marinators when we have so many cool things to be investing our treasury assets in as a project. So once we get to the point where the revenue from the vault fees outstrips the, you know, great significantly outstrips the revenue from um, just our own owned treasury, you know, protocol owned GLP assets will probably shift to just sharing revenue with um, marinators and just keep the, you know, keep the yield from our own protocol and liquidity. And then also, though, the other thing I'll add is that our, our plan, just to, I'm going to be very precise about this. Um, to the extent that it's possible is in the near term, you know, it'll probably be 50% of performance fees and 50% of management fees being given out to marinators, you know, consistently, you know, every few days, um, deposit fees at first will keep, it's kind of, like I said, a front loaded capital raise. Um, but we have some internal targets, uh, 
um, for what we want our protocol and liquidity to be to make us just basically fully sustainable um, as a project, um, you know, just on the yield from our own treasury assets. And once we hit that, we really don't have any reason to keep um, fee revenue in our treasury. Um, so we'll probably start sharing an even higher percentage of fees with marinators. We'll probably start sharing, you know, at first 50% of deposit fees, and then, you know, we'll start increasing you know, above 50% of management and performance fees and just shifting umami more and more towards being, you know, this huge cash flow generator because we won't need, we'll have no, once, you know, the, the needs of the protocol from an OPEX perspective are fully met, um, you know, by its own treasury assets we just don't need to hold on to revenue anymore so of course we're going to share it with our community um so that hopefully is that is that a helpful framework uh super helpful um in fact uh as you were describing this um i'm just all kinds of like trad five verbiage is just floating in my head like the mm -hmm. the treasury management that we call in DeFi is also called balance sheet trading in a traditional investment bank mm -hmm. um and so anyway, um, so, so, and, and these are all, and then of course the products and services that you're building, which are what we call in DeFi, um, the vaults, uh, you know, these are, these are all in, independent revenue business streams, um, uh, or revenue verticals for, for the, for the DAO and, mm -hmm. um, claim to, uh, revenue from the various streams can be, you know, um, segmented accordingly. So, but uh, if I just want to recap, um, from a high level, it appears that for the time being, while the products and services are still in under construction, the, the fee share, uh, the revenue share will be primarily then through the um, balance sheet trading or AKA treasury management through mm -hmm. the GLP. Yes. Um, but uh, I actually wanted to, you, you mentioned something very interesting, which is that um, at some point when the vaults scale um, and the revenue eclipses the, uh, the balance sheet trading of the DAO, um, that potentially the, uh, and the treasury is uh, well capitalized enough to mm -hmm. uh, maintain copex uh, opex expenses um that the uh, the potential revenue share from the vaults from the products and services may 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 go higher than 50% because the opex mm -hmm. is covered that's right um i want i wanted to touch on this a little bit more um so the there's the point concerning the deposit fee of o point uh of 50 basis points um this uh you mentioned that it's sort of like a capital raise um, for the treasury in the, in the beginning. Does then that presume that at some point the uh, 50 basis point deposit fee may be removed sometime in the future at a certain um, video? Good so question. The, Go ahead. The, there's, some, there's some need for a deposit or withdrawal fee just through uh, the smart contractor, a smart contract of vaults, tokenized vaults exploits where someone can enter the vault with the right timing enter and then exit um, and not put any assets, you know, contributing towards the yield, but still gain a share of the yield. Um, or if they use, uh, you know, large amounts of capital to go enter and exit really quickly with certain timing, it leaves it open to, you know, taking more than their fair share of, of, uh, of the yield. So there will always be some level of either a deposit or withdrawal fee. It could be reduced, um, but some level uh, to negate, you know, that incentive, um, it, it will always be, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the only thing I'll add, um, just to for a blockchain watcher, 
is, you know, what Prehop says exactly right. It's it's there. We we realized after the fact that it functions like a nice capital raise for the Treasury, but that was not the intent at the time. It was to avoid this front-running issue. So we'll have some sort of deposit fee. And, you know, long-term, which you might imagine, um, blockchain watchers, that, you know, it only has that sort of front-loading function if you're modeling this out month after month for revenue flows when the vaults are first scaling it front loads significant revenue, which is nice because then that helps build up our runway, right? But once those vaults reach some kind of, you know, more or less steady state of TVL, which is really, it's a function of variety of factors, but for the GLP vaults, it's obviously a function of the TVL of GLP as a whole. We can't, we can't scale, you know, above that. And we, we want to be mindful to not, you know, push so much TVL into GLP that we're diluting GLP's yield. So once, you know, those, vaults reach their sort of steady state TVL, then the deposit fees stop having that front loading function. They start having this kind of smooth um, function that's more of a, it's more if you think about a stock and flow, right? That like that any given month, there's a certain number, there's a certain amount of churn between deposits and withdrawals. And of course that leads to new deposit fees. And if you were to look at our own internal DCF model, there's a point sometime in early, uh, early 2023, basically where, we're just coming up with kind of a uh, a fixed number that we plug in each month for deposit fees. That's just assuming, you know, some level, some modest level of churn each month um, by vault depositors. So at that point, it doesn't really, from a revenue standpoint, function any differently than the performance and management fees. Um, uh, everything that you guys have said have make make a lot of sense. I will uh, push back a little bit. Um, as I understand, if I would, if, if if I'm articulating it correctly, the main or one of the primary arguments for the deposits fee, um, especially once you reach a st- steady state, is this aspect of security, mm-hmm. uh, particularly front running or uh, otherwise. Um, uh, just as a potential consideration, um, so, so re- I'm, I'm sure that the team has recognized the the. Uh, negative UI UX consequences for having a deposit fee. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you guys have taken that into account, but there is potentially another solution to mitigate this uh, security um, concern, which is um, you could implement, um, which other similar projects have um, aspects of time locking. So um, it has the same effect of preventing front running um, without the effect of potentially having the same sort of, it's a fair UI, point. UX sort of. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's that's very true. Right, they both yeah, yeah both have the same effect of mitigating that that yeah. risk. But these are forty six twenty six vaults, so any time lock would have to be epoch based. So it would have to be you know a monthly unlock for all tokens. It can't be structured in such a way that you deposit and then you have your own timer counting down uh, i see well, well yeah. yeah so in this in this version we don't have any user stored data right on on individual timers it's done purely on on tokenized shares of the vault so yeah you know it, it adds some technical data of okay now there's user data what happens when someone transfers those token shares um you know so yeah, there's there's a lot to consider, uh, but I think as we move forward, we'll definitely publish the details on how we decide to handle deposit fees because you're right, there is um, definitely 
um, you mm-hmm. know, people have a, a lot of opinions on deposit fees when they go to enter and think, oh, you know, initial uh, hit of, of 0.5% versus no hit at all when they're entering. Um, yeah. But yeah, very, very good, very good points. It's so. a good point. Yeah. And don't, and don't ever hesitate just to, you know, we can, we can chat about this more. You can DM me here pre-pop and we can set up a little group. If you have specific ideas, we're always happy to field ideas from the community. Um, you know, just a few high level thoughts. So to tie this up is, you know, first of all, we did reimburse our V1 depositors, you know, for the deposit fee, as well as, um, you know, just the roughly 1% loss in uh, net asset value. And we hope that that sends a signal to users that this is not a, uh, it's not a risk, except that, you know, we're going to, when, when we launch this new vault, we're going to, you know, have very, very carefully back tested it. And, you know, it will be the case, therefore, that, you know, it, it, should be a very high probability that if people hold on to the token for, I would say, um, more than 10 days, for example, or 15 days, that that would cover the cost of the deposit fee. So, and and we've hopefully made clear that, you know, if there are downside scenarios, that we would not, you know, that we would reimburse people if there was, you know, any sort of unexpected tail risk that played out that we were in any way um, responsible for, which, you know, we would probably reimburse from almost any tail risk situation like that. Um, so hopefully that will help address concerns that people might have um, that, oh, I'm going to pay this. And then somehow, you know, that could just end up being pure, pure loss for me. Um, that being said, there to, you know, as we just discussed, there are other ways to handle the front running. Um, and Prepop and I will continue to discuss that. Um, and just to be clear kind of on what our general principles are, we don't, we're not married to a deposit fee where our goal is just to have an optimized revenue model that, you know, is, is competitive with, you know, peers in the space and, and comps and TradFi is, you know, structured in a way that of course allows the protocol to capture, uh, you know, its fair share of value that it generates. And that also is, you know, easy to understand and, you know, just relatively seamless from a UX perspective. So, you know, we if we find that, as you said, a lot of people really don't like the deposit fee and we have other ways to handle front running, then yeah, of course, we'll, we'll look at alternatives. Awesome. No, uh, I, I, can, I can tell that you guys have thought um, deeply about this. So um, really looking forward to continuing this discussion uh, within the community as well. So this is awesome. Um, yeah, definitely. I, apo- uh, I apologize for taking up the floor here. If anyone else wants to talk, um, but I did have an interesting comment. So I've, I, I, I did scrub through um, at least the published uh, Umami um, treasury wallets, the multi-sig, uh, the mainnet multi-sig, and the deployment multi-sig. Um, and I did notice that in the, I think it's the, it may be the deployment multi-sig, but um, it's the one with, just a small amount of ESGMX left over, about 100,000 USD. There's like some amount of umami. Um, I'm looking at the value now, around 32,000. This is the wallet ending in uh, 0BA. Does it start with BOB, OXBOB? Uh, that's the one, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's our governance wallet, yeah. Governance wallet. Okay, so uh, the question I had is I noticed that, and, me, and this is a marginal amount, but it's, um, I think it's just important to address in the um, spirit of transparency, there's a marginal amount of umami stakes within the protocol from the treasury wallet. Oh, is that normal? 
Um, that is literally just a function of, of the following. I'll, I'll explain that. It totally makes sense you'd ask about that. Um, yeah, we're not like there would be no point in farming our own the treasury farming itself, right? Like that just nets out. It doesn't do anything. But I, I get that what that does do, I'm thinking out loud, is it adds some amount to the quantity of umami marinating and in theory would modestly dilute the claim of external community holders, right? Is that, that's probably what you're thinking about um, in, in bringing it up, which is a fair point. Um, and we should probably, look, as a best practice, we probably should just unstake any umami that's sitting on our balance sheet. It really is, it nets itself out, right? Like that ETH would just circle back to the treasury, which we would then pull back into the treasury and then push again um, to to marinators. And it's, I don't believe, as you said, it's not that much anyways. Basically what you're seeing there is that, you know, we are, <laughs> there's still only so many of us kind of managing all of our expenses and you know, smart contracts and, um, you know, just handling all of you know the hundreds and hundreds of treasury uh, transactions that we do each month. And that is a vestige of, you know, when we were seeding the smart contracts of uh, team members, essentially, right? So the team members are compensated in either M Umami or CM Umami. We felt that that was a very attractive and competitive form of compensation for the team that gives them, you know, a very real stake in the, in growing protocol revenue, because they're actually, you know, getting a share of, of that protocol revenue as marinators. And it greatly reduces the risk of dumping. Um, we felt that it was just the best for long-term alignment, in other words. Um, and of course, in order to seed those people's contracts, we needed to take the umami on our balance sheet and convert it to either M umami or CM umami. Um, and basically, you know, we would do that in blocks, right? Not necessarily to the decimal for each person's contract, and that would leave some amount left just sitting there on the balance sheet as M umami or CM umami. Um, that being said, the question that you've raised from, from an accounting perspective is we should make, I guess that, that those do show up. Uh, that shows up in the UI when people see how many umami are marinating. It, yeah, that's that umami. Yeah. So it should, it should yeah. be for anyways, but that, that's I'll, the I'll, I'll make some notes on that too. Um, so the, the contracts we're talking about are uh, one-year vested linear contracts. So um, team members have their you know, choice of marinated umami or combated marinated umami sent to their vesting contract, and it's unlocked over, over the duration of a year. Um, and one of, the, one of the issues, if I, think, uh, if I remember correctly, we had over over marinated some umami when we were seeding those contracts. And of course, just like everyone else's marinated umami, we can't unlock it until the uh, end of the month period. So it was probably a point where we had marinated it, um, realized we marinated too much and we couldn't immediately unmarinate it. So it got stuck, but thank you so much for bringing us to our attention. Um, and I think, you know, on this next unlock, we will, unmarinate that so uh that treasury wallet just has uh straight umami yeah these are great questions i appreciate this attention to detail i've taken notes from our conversation to add to the docs more details on our fee structure and on our smart contract structure for the community because I, I think these are good questions
Uh, this is, uh, these are also really great answers. Um, and, and I promise this is my last question and I hope these are helpful for the community. Um, uh, with regards to the employee, employee vesting. So, uh, you had mentioned that employees, um, rightfully so, uh, are, uh, compensated, um, in umami or C umami, um, which is the compounding version of it. Um, and then there's a secondary contract, which is the vesting contract, which distributes the CU mommy to the employees. Is that, am I understanding that flow correctly? Somewhat. Um, I'll just explain this in like, I'll explain it the way that I would, I would just normally explain it if someone asks, and then you can tell me if it addresses your question. I mean, first of all, like we, we do have, you know, we have salaries in the form of USDC or fiat, right? Through umami labs. Um, and, you know, one thing that we will be adding this month um, going into September uh, for further transparency is, you know, if you go on the docs right now, you'll see that there's a services agreement between Umami Labs LLC and Umami Dow Foundation, right? Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that. And we're going to add either there in the docs or just in the Discord um, some easily accessible place, the monthly invoices that Labs sends to the Dow for the USDC or fiat component of team comp. Um, so, you know, for us, like most of us, I've, I've never touched my umami denominated compensation, even though it has vested from the smart contract. Um, I think that's true of most of us, you know, or at least I, I might've, I've never touched any significant material amount of that umami. Um, because we, we rely, you know, on our, for a monthly spend on the, the USDC or fiat and, you know, mommy labs has an on-ramp off on-ramp slash off-ramp through FTX um, so that people can take, you know, either just USDC to a wallet of their choice or fiat to a bank account of their choice. So that's, you know, the sort of the bread and butter of our, of our compensation. Then, you know, we also have umami tokens and just to be clear, there's not sort of two parts to that. It's not like, it's just that, everyone is given a smart contract, right? We have to, now the treasury needs to seed that smart contract with the you know, requisite umami that that team member, you know, receives, right? Um, but all of their, everything vesting to their wallet um, will be through that smart contract. And so that smart contract would have either marinated umami or compounded marinated umami in it. And it would vest linearly over 12 months. So those are the two forms of compensation. Gotcha. So um, when the when an employee joins or however that is uh, arranged, um, Umami Labs, and then they are essentially given a, uh, they're assigned a smart contract, which vests over a year and is seeded by the, uh, by the Treasury. Yeah. And to answer that in a more technical level, just to, for what it's worth, they sign traditional contracts with umami labs um for the fiat or usdc component and they are provided by the dow with their smart contract awesome well that um that concludes all of my questions thank you so much um gentlemen that was super helpful yeah great questions we appreciate this level of interest Um, Prepop, any last thoughts on your end? I think we've covered a lot. Appreciate everyone who stuck with us through this. And uh, Blockchain Watcher, feel free to reach out anytime. We really appreciate this kind of attention to what we're doing. But thanks a lot, folks.
yeah, yeah, thank you guys. And yeah, thanks for the, the questions and thanks for the support too, everybody. Um, and yeah, well, we're always in the, in the Discord too. So if you uh, think of any questions or have something to say, feel free to reach out. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. Thank you.